short rounds. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. I remain your host, James Hauser. This is the first episode of what I call short rounds. Think of these as like mini episodes. These will be for topics or subjects that aren't big or long enough for their own episodes, but are just too darn interesting to be left out. I also plan to use them after some of my normal length episodes to expand on a topic or person or event that I don't have room for in the broader narrative, or maybe just to rant on this obscure thing that I'm really interested in. And if for some reason I don't have a full length episode for the week, you will have a short round of some kind or another on Monday. So you'll have to live without me for a week because I know how hard that would be. I plan for all my short rounds to be 30 minutes or less, so there's no breaks. There's also no background music. I know you're heartbroken, but hey, this is what most normal podcasters give you anyway, and they seem to do okay, so I think you might be able to endure. I have faith in you. Our story today concerns a very strange event in 1976 on the Korean DMZ, where an attempt to cut down some tree almost starts World War III. Well, maybe. Probably not. That's a great headline, isn't it? Today's short round is about what is often termed the Korean Axe Murder Incident and the subsequent Operation Paul Bunyan, aka the most expensive landscaping project in human history. As always, this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. The podcast is PG-13, guys. Language is clean. The content is not. All my sources will be posted on my website, so if you want to fact check me, feel free to do so. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers, even though this whole incident was silly. So let's get into it. On July 27, 1953, the two warring sides of the Korean War signed an armistice. United Nations, led by the United States of America on one side, and the North Koreans and the People's Republic of China on the other. As part of the armistice, both sides agreed to withdraw their forces 2,000 meters from the front lines as they were when the treaty was signed. This left a band of about 4 kilometers, roughly 2.5 miles, where no forces from either side would be allowed. This band became known as the Demilitarized Zone, or the DMZ. This little strip of land stretches across the Korean Peninsula, dividing North and South Korea from the East China Sea to the Sea of Japan. The DMZ retains the same shape as it had on July 27, 1953, to this very day, unless something has seriously changed since I recorded this. Now, as many people have pedantically pointed out since then, the Korean War is not technically over. There's an armistice, but there's no peace treaty. And I don't know if you guys know this, but the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, aka North Korea, doesn't have a lot of chill. You might say they have zero chill. And the Republic of Korea, or ROK, aka South Korea, has been ever vigilant against North Korean aggression. And of course, the United States and other UN nations retain troops in South Korea to deter aggression from the North, so the DMZ is like a chain-link fence holding two very angry dogs apart. There are safer places to be than the Korean DMZ. This is a great time to tell you guys that I, James Hauser, once upon a time, was one of those troops in South Korea, and I have been to the Korean DMZ. This is not a brag, it's not that difficult to go. A whole bunch of soldiers, including myself, went up and did the tour back in 2013. 
Might also be good time to say I'm a big fan of South Korea, Korean culture and beliefs and history. It's all just fascinating to me, and my service in South Korea gave me a deep affection for the Korean people. I'd love to go someday when I'm not in uniform and have a bit of money. You should if you have the opportunity. So the Korean DMZ still has two villages inside of it. Taesongdong on the South Korean side and Kijongdong on the North Korean are the only two settlements allowed to remain populated inside the DMZ and only people who lived in those villages before the Korean War, along with their descendants, can live in the villages now. Retaining the villages has major, major propaganda value for both sides. At first sight, it appears that Kijongdong, the North Korean village, is far more modern and populated than Taesongdong. But it has been claimed that most of the buildings are shells with no actual residents, and that only a small team of caretakers actively pretends that Kijongdong is populated. This is similar to the old Soviet Potemkin villages. There are still kidnappings and stuff in the 21st century. I remember hearing a story about at least one South Korean farmer from Taesongdong being captured by North Korean soldiers about a decade ago, and there had to be negotiations and stuff to get her released. It's still pretty wild in there, to be honest. But if the DMZ is kind of crazy now, in the couple of decades just after the Korean War, it was even crazier. Cross-border raids and violence remained common, and especially in the 1960s, there was a genuine low-intensity war along the Korean DMZ. Some people even call the period 1966 to 1969 the Second Korean War, though it was nowhere near as bad as the first one. During this period, 43 Americans, 299 South Koreans, and 397 North Koreans were killed in various clashes and skirmishes within the DMZ. The area was sown with landmines, aircraft got into fights, assassinations were attempted, naval vessels got into shooting matches with artillery. It was just a mess. Now, this was nothing to compare with what was going on at the time in Vietnam, of course, but it was still pretty wild. Nobody was going on tour to the DMZ in 1967. Now, inside the DMZ near the west coast, the old village of Panmunjom sits midway between the two countries. Panmunjom houses and housed the Joint Security Area, that place you've seen on the news where all the talks are held and all the tour buses go to. The Joint Security Area, or JSA, is what it's called, contains multiple buildings on either side, including barracks and all these historical facilities. Both North and South Korean forces confront each other there to this day, face-to-face, 24-7. There are buildings at the JSA with invisible lines drawn through them, where North Koreans sit on one side and South Koreans sit on the other during their talks. So yeah, it's kind of a tense place. In the 1970s, there were still various North Korean, South Korean, and UN outposts scattered across the JSA, and several of these outposts face raids and attacks on a semi-regular basis. Today, There's an invisible line that separates security forces within the JSA from each other. But in 1976, North Korean, South Korean, U.S., whoever, could mingle together within the JSA. There was no line. It was just an every man for himself inside the JSA. Strict rules kept the number of weapons allowed inside the JSA to a minimum. Only five armed officers and 30 armed enlisted men were permitted from either side inside the JSA at any given time. So many soldiers carried big sticks or clubs or truncheons rather than pistols or rifles. The two sides were not friends, sneering at and spitting on and harassing each other whenever they got the chance. U.S. soldiers were only permitted to serve in the JSA if they were over six feet tall to intimidate their North Korean rivals. 
I guess that disqualifies me. I guess I'm just not intimidating enough. I need to grow six inches. Things were still tense inside the DMZ and JSA in August 1976. One American officer had gotten into an altercation with a North Korean only months before. That was still a fresh issue. One UN outpost, CP3 or Checkpoint 3, overlooked the Bridge of No Return, or the bridge into North Korean territory within the DMZ. But CP3, often called the loneliest checkpoint in the world, was in a poor position. Military outposts generally need to be within sight of other military outposts for security reasons, and CP3 was in an exposed and dangerous position, so it needed to be visible from the other sites. But during the summer, CP3 was only visible from CP2, which was outside the JSA. CP3 was concealed from its closest supporting position, OP5, which lay to the north. They couldn't see each other. What kept them from seeing each other, you ask? And we're here. A tree. A tree at the DMZ. Just a tree. An 80-foot-tall Normandy poplar tree blocked the line of sight between CP3 and OP5. Allied security within the JSA demanded that these two outposts be able to observe each other, so the decision was made, somewhere, to cut down the tree. Now, keep in mind, no one exactly owned this tree. It was within the JSA, a neutral zone. No one really controlled the area. It was a joint area. But the United Nations Command deemed it a security threat to the lonely outpost at CP3, and they decided to take action. On the morning of August 18th, 1976, a small team of United Nations soldiers set out to cut down the poplar tree that was so vexing to the higher-ups. This team was led by Captain Arthur G. Boniface of the United States Army, his South Korean Army liaison, Captain Kim, and his XO, Lieutenant Mark Barrett. Captain Boniface was in his early 30s, a by-the-book officer who was determined to present a bold face to the North Koreans. Eleven enlisted personnel from both the United States and South Korean armies followed them into the JSA to escort the five Korean Service Corps workers, civilians, whose job it was to trim the tree. The higher-ups had not told Boniface that the North Koreans might object to the tree-cutting project. Only a couple of weeks before, on August 6th, South Korean soldiers had tried to chop down the tree, but some of the North Koreans drove up in a truck and threatened them if they didn't cut it out. The day afterwards, North Korea had made an official statement that the Allied forces in the DMZ were engaged in aggressive activities. I guess the tree was an aggressive activity, cutting down the tree. This was context that, you know, might have been useful given what followed. As Captain Boniface and his small team arrived at the tree, the Korean workers climbed their ladders and got busy with saws and axes. Their force was lightly armed, no rifles or heavy weapons. Their truck was loaded with up with tools, including matic candles in the bed, and the axes the service corps guys were using on the tree. But this was a routine unit on a routine mission. It was just another day at work. At first. About 15 to 20 minutes after the tree trimming mission began, 15 North Korean soldiers arrived to watch the operation. They were commanded by Lieutenant Pak Chul, a North Korean officer that the UNC soldiers knew as Lieutenant Bulldog because of his aggressive behavior. Pak observed the work for a while, then all of a sudden demanded that the UN forces stop cutting down that tree. According to the North Koreans, the tree had been planted and nourished by Kim Il-sung, their leader, you know, the grandfather of Kim Jong-un, and that it was under his protection. I mean, okay, dude, dude, I get that you love your leader and all, but it's a tree. 
And that'll be my theme for today, everybody. Guys, calm down. It's a tree. It's one tree. Okay. But Lieutenant Pock was all out of calm. When Captain Boniface refused to halt the operation and coldly turned his back on the North Koreans, Pock called in reinforcements. About 20 more North Koreans arrived shortly, carrying pipes and clubs and crowbars. No firearms, sure, but, you know, I don't want to be the dude fighting the angry North Korean dude with the crowbar, do you? Pock once again ordered Captain Boniface to stop cutting down the tree, but Captain Boniface ignored him and ordered the workers to continue. It appeared that Lieutenant Pock had woken up this morning and chose violence. Captain Boniface, with his back turned, did not see it coming. According to Major General John K. Singlob, Chief of Staff for U.S. Forces Korea, he did not see Lieutenant Pock remove his watch, wrap it in a handkerchief, and stick it into the pocket of his trousers. Nor did he see the other North Korean officer rolling up the sleeves of his jacket. An American strode forward to warn Captain Boniface. At that moment, Lieutenant Pock screamed, Kill! At this signal, the North Koreans surged forward, using their blunt weapons to assault the outnumbered and surprised UN security forces. Captain Boniface was knocked down by Lieutenant Pock, quickly surrounded by around five North Koreans and beaten to death within a minute. The North Koreans also picked up the axes the South Korean workers had been using to cut down the tree and attacked their opponents with these as well. The entire fight only lasted about 30 seconds before the UN forces fought off the attack and placed Captain Boniface's body in their truck. But Lieutenant Barrett was missing. Barrett, Captain Boniface's deputy, tried to flee the attack by jumping over a nearby wall and running into a spot of low ground where he vanished from sight. The North Koreans followed him with axes, knocked him down, and chopped at him for over an hour until a rescue mission was able to save the young officer. But being attacked by several axe murderers is not a recipe for survival, and Lieutenant Barrett died on the way to the hospital. Lieutenant Barrett and Captain Boniface, Captain Boniface, who left behind a wife and three children when he passed away, days before he was supposed to leave the JSA, were the only two fatalities of the incident, though eight other UN security troops were badly injured. This infamous event has become known to history as the Korean Axe Murder Incident. Now, I will say, the narrative I gave is somewhat sketchy. There is some debate over the course and narrative of events. One small detail that my sources conflict on is whether Captain Boniface and Lieutenant Barrett were wearing sidearms or not. What is absolutely clear is that no shots were fired on August 18, 1976. Either way, whether or not they were wearing pistols... The use of firearms inside the JSA was severely restricted, and the officers probably never had the chance to draw their weapons even if they had them. But the big question is why the North Koreans reacted so suddenly and violently to the tree-chopping operation. American and CIA sources claim that the attack was premeditated, that the North Koreans had been planning a violent attack for some time as part of the general pissing match that the JSA had been for the last few months. Political motives, maybe a bid to affect the U.S. election in 1976, what have you. Captain Boniface was known to the North Koreans as a no-nonsense officer who had stood them down more than once, the same way that Lieutenant Pak had the reputation of an aggressive troublemaker. But to me, this screams spur of the moment. The North Koreans had beef, and Lieutenant Pak saw his chance to dish it out. The tree at the DMZ still stood, and two American officers were dead. So it was time for Americans to do what they did best, and still do best, 
overreact. When President Gerald Ford and his cabinet were briefed on the incident, opinions were divided. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger was all for open retaliation on North Korean military positions, and even asked if there were some North Korean fishing boats that the United States could go shoot up, which A, dude, what the heck, and B, actually that sounds pretty on par for Henry Kissinger. But President Ford had no wish to try and start World War III during a presidential election year by directly attacking North Korean property or troops. No, we can wait to start World War III after the election, right? He decided that the tree would be cut down, and the United States would deploy an overwhelming show of force to make sure it was cut down. So that's how a tree at the DMZ suddenly became an international incident worthy of a presidential executive order. Guys, calm down. It's a tree. Yeah, I know it's about sending a message, not backing down to evil, etc. It's a piece of wood. It's a piece of wood that's growing in the ground. And Okay. The result of President Ford's decision was codenamed Operation Paul Bunyan. It would be the largest show of force that the United States had ever deployed to the Korean Peninsula since the Korean War before or since. Every unit in Korea was put on high alert, and the readiness level was raised to DEFCON 3, which, for, reading, for, for reference, is the readiness level for certain units during the Cuban Missile Crisis and 9-11. It's a tree. On August 21st, 1976, three days after the incident at the DMZ, Lieutenant Colonel Victor S. Vieira drove into the JSA with 23 American and South Korean vehicles full of soldiers. His vehicles also carried two combat engineer teams with chainsaws who had one mission, cut down the tree. Bombs were armed and artillery units were sighted on the bridges leading into the JSA. Rafts were built on the Imjin River in case emergency evacuation was needed. South Korean special forces, including current South Korean President Moon Jae-in, deployed at the Bridge of No Return. These special forces units, the South Koreans, were trained in Taekwondo. Some of them had Claymore mines strapped to their chests. They were just screaming at the North Koreans to try it. Just freaking try it. We dare you. Do something. But that wasn't all. General Richard Stilwell, commanding U.S. forces in Korea, had a smorgasbord of destruction at his disposal. Helicopters containing more troops circled the JSA. Fighter jets streaked over the JSA. B-52 bombers, capable of dropping nuclear weapons, but probably not armed with nuclear weapons because that would be just a little bit too crazy, hovered over the JSA. Armored units were placed on standby. Marines had been sent in from Okinawa. An aircraft carrier was patrolling off the coast. Every allied unit in Korea was prepared to go to war, including the unit I served in in Korea, 2-9 Infantry, which provided many of the soldiers for Operation Paul Bunyan. One soldier in 2-9 Infantry, Private Joel Brown, had this to say. We were prepared not to come back. It, it felt kind of surreal. We've been here since 1950, and it's all going to go down over this tree. And for all that... The tree was cut down in 42 minutes. About 200 North Korean soldiers arrived midway through the operation, and they set up machine gun positions overlooking the operation, but they just watched in silence as the American engineers cut away the branches of the tree with their chainsaws. The full might of the U.S. military sat waiting with guns and missiles and bombs at the ready for these dudes to finish their landscaping project. Your tax dollars at work. Finally, the work was finished, and a 20-foot stump was left of the 80-foot tree that had once blocked the line of sight between CP3 and OP5. 
Operation Paul Bunyan was a success, and the Allied forces withdrew. Congratulations on your, um, victory. And that was that. The North Koreans did not retaliate. According to American intelligence intercepts, it looks like their minds were just blown at how much firepower the United States pulled out for the operation. I mean, yeah, join the club, right? If the military's purpose was to intimidate the North Koreans, it did the trick. But I think it was just confusing. Like, what are these guys doing? It confuses me. It's a tree. Some officers even believed the incident almost sparked World War III, and that if the North Koreans had tried to resist the American lumberjack operation, that the consequences would have been a disaster. General Singlaub, again, Chief of Staff for U.S. Forces Korea, later said, It was my estimate, shared by many of the staff, that the operation stood a 50-50 chance of starting a war. In less than an hour, several hundred thousand men might very well be fighting and dying in those steep, blood-soaked mountains. If the murderous North Korean assault on our forces had been part of an elaborate plot to trigger an American military response, which in turn would provoke a North Korean invasion, we might be teetering on the brink of a holocaust. If North Korea unleashed a massive armored assault against Seoul, we would have had no choice but to request authorization for the first use of nuclear weapons since World War II. But there was no backing down now. Two things. Uh, first, if that was a real possibility, why the heck did you guys do that? And second, take anything Singlaub says with a grain of salt because he was relieved of command by President Jimmy Carter for insubordination and was later implicated in the Iran-Contra scandal. Also, it's a tree. It's not... What? And that's it. Well, not quite it. The Joint Security Area's UN camp was renamed Camp Boniface for the slain U.S. Army captain. The Korean Axe murder incident and Operation Paul Bunyan were a big reason why the JSA was eventually separated into North Korean and South Korean halves, the situation that exists today, where the soldiers of the two Koreas face each other over the invisible line that divides their two countries. The tree stump was finally removed in 1987 and replaced with a plaque commemorating the incident. Oh, and the commanding general had a swagger stick made from the wood of the tree. You know, oh, look, look, we got this stick from the tree that we chopped down, showed those North Korean commies. I don't know, maybe he was compensating for something. But maybe the United States was compensating for something. Why did the United States overreact so hugely to the axe murder incident? Why did they, if Singlob is to be believed, risk World War III over this tree? Personally? I think the U.S. military was in a dark place in the mid-1970s. After the failure and tragedy of Vietnam and the birth of the all-volunteer force, American military morale was at one of its lowest points. It was one of the dark ages of the U.S. military, and I think the overreaction of Operation Paul Bunyan was just the USA trying to get its groove back, trying to restore some of the aura of power and invincibility that it had lost. Yeah, it was over a stupid tree. But Americans wouldn't be the first or last country to make a big issue of a little thing. Something about two of our officers being murdered just rubbed us the wrong way at a critical time, reminded us of our vulnerabilities and limitations, and compelled us to show these North Koreans that we weren't going to be pushed around. When you look at it that way, such an absurd overreaction makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Today, Though North and South Korean soldiers still face each other over the invisible line at Panmunjom, the DMZ is much more peaceful. Peaceful enough that I could go take a tour in 2013, and you can probably take a tour if you go now. 
Maybe keep an eye out for a little plaque. A plaque commemorating the place where something big almost, maybe, probably not, but could have gone down about 45 years ago. Maybe it would have been World War III, maybe not. But two men lost their lives, and a lot more men stood to lose theirs over one little tree at the DMZ. Thanks a bunch for listening to me today. I hope you learned something. It was even if it's this crazy little incident that happened a long time ago, which is basically all of history. If you want to give feedback or get in touch, you can check my website and leave a comment at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. Find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod. You can even email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I live and thrive on feedback. So if you've got feedback, I would love to hear it no matter what it is. And finally, thanks for listening to the very first of my short rounds. See you next week, same time, same place, on Unknown Soldiers. Unknown Soldiers.